It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we ask how we should approach reporting on Newcastle United's Saudi Arabian takeover. We'll also ask what's next for the club. Meanwhile, we still don't know what offside is and Thibaut Courtois calls out UEFA's greed. This is The Game. Hello, hope you've had a good weekend. Welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wilson-Croft. Helping me out this week, Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd and Tom Clark. I hope you're all well. I am not feeling on top of the world this Monday morning. I've got to tell you, it was a, <laughs> it's been a very difficult past few days. I went to the England match in Andorra. Fantastic win for Gareth Southgate's side, but that was very much secondary to what felt like if you've seen the film final destination i felt like i was just about just about (laughs) staying two steps ahead of of death he was reaching out trying to (laughs) grab at me i'll be perfectly honest with you where should i start well on the way to andorra it was very hot when i landed i had a coat on when i left england because it was a bit chilly it was boiling as soon as i got to barcelona so as i took my my bag off the uh, carousel at the airport, I thought, right, I'm putting my coat in my suitcase here. So I took the padlock off my bag, put my keys in my pocket, um, put my coat in my bag and uh, put the padlock in my pocket, walked out to try and get my coach. I went to get a taxi. As I got in the back of the taxi, I thought, right, I've got about 45 minutes to get to the bus station to get my coach to Andorra. Threw all my stuff in the back, got in the back of the taxi. When I had booked this ticket for the bus, it said it was a 16-minute journey. I looked onto Google Maps and it said 58 minutes. And it was just one of those long oh, red lines no. of like oh, really no. bad track. It, yeah, I landed at 5.35 basically. So it was the middle of rush hour. So I missed that bus. Uh, in the meantime, I'm in the car. I'm thinking, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be able to get the bus to Andorra. So I'm like looking. I booked another ticket, realized there was another bus station a bus that was going two hours later than the one that I was meant to be on. It meant I wouldn't get to Andorra until about quarter to one in the morning, but it was the last bus out of Barcelona to Andorra. So it was, the, it was, it, I just had to do it. Basically I had commitments on the Friday with England. So, so I had to go. So I'm in, in this traffic, divert the, the taxi driver who can't speak a word of English anyway, get out of the taxi. Now me being clever, as I got into the taxi, I thought I'm going to have to jump straight out and put my, my suitcase onto a coach. You know, I don't want anyone to steal my stuff. I've got loads of equipment. So I put the padlock back onto my suitcase. Oh, no. As I get oh, out of no. the taxi, oh, no. I realize, yeah, this is the point that I realize I have locked the keys for the padlock <laughs> and my wallet 
inside <laughs> my suitcase. <laughs> oh, now, no. the taxi driver is going ballistic at me because he's actually stopped in this traffic to let me quickly jump out. I've realized I've got no money and I've locked my money in the suitcase. So genuinely, oh, I've got to say to him, I haven't got, do you know what? I got very, very lucky. So I thought I haven't got any money. What am I going to do? Obviously I had my phone with me. So I quickly like what downloaded whatever I needed to do, set it up on my phone and managed to pay by card on my phone, but having held up the traffic, being screamed at in Spanish by this, but absolutely ballistic taxi driver. So it's already going hysterically badly. And I've still got to try and get on the bus. I've got about an hour and a half now to get onto my, my new bus. And, um, and my, my bag is padlocked with everything inside. So uh, exactly. So I'm now rushing around Barcelona city center to try and find, I don't know what I was looking for. So I ran into a car garage and I was like, do you have a pair of pliers? And they were like, no, <laughs> we don't have a pair of pliers. And I was like, uh, is there a bike repair shop? I don't know. I was just trying to think of, and um, I, 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 the guy couldn't speak English. So I, I took him over to my suitcase and basically grabbed the padlock and said, I need to cut it. And he was like, ferretia, ferretia. And I was just, honestly, I had no idea what he meant. I literally typed in ferretia onto my phone, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yeah. which was a hardware shop. I managed to find one on Google Maps, get all my luggage down there. And thankfully, the guy cut the padlock off and I managed to get back to the station, get the bus at eight o'clock, the long windy journey through the Pyrenees to Andorra, get to the hotel at half midnight, I was the only person, I felt sick all the way along this journey, by the way. I was the only person that stayed awake, cramped oh, onto this coach, get to the hotel, Mr. Woosencroft, two nights, no record of your booking. So I'm oh, standing there no. half past midnight at You're the hotel, joking. finally reached Andorra. They haven't got a booking for me. Like, so I'm standing there going, he's like, have you got a confirmation? I have a confirmation. He's like, no record of, of your room here. I'm, I'm really sorry. And I was just like thinking that the hotel was going to be absolutely like full. Obviously, it's a big tourist destination. And he just said, oh, no, look, we've, uh, they'll sort it out tomorrow, basically. He said, email me your confirmation. We'll get it sorted. But he did leave me there for about, we were talking for about 45 minutes trying to sort it out before he eventually went, I'll give you a room and we'll sort it out overnight that the bookings team will be in like first thing in the morning. So it was already going horrendously badly. I then, of course, go to England training on Friday. I'm in the press box. I am sending back some of the audio and, um, and, and everyone just starts running out of the press room. I've got headphones on. I'm listening to the audio that I've just recorded. These headphones, noise cancelling. So I actually can't even hear that the fire alarm is going off. Honestly, the other, the other journalists on, the, on England camp would left me there to die because they all just <laughs> ran out the door. And I, I, I'm looking around and the, as the last person runs past me, I sort of go, where's everyone running? pull off one ear of my headphones and he says, um, there's a fire. So obviously I then hear the fire alarms and I'm like, is this real? Because obviously the day before an international game, so many things get tested. Every, just about every noise comes <laughs> over the tannoy for every situation. So you're like, is it real? Run outside. And as I'm sure many of you have seen, the TV gantry's on fire and it's spreading onto the pitch. So it was just a ridiculously busy day. I'm there. I got told off a number of times because I'm running over to the fire to try and get videos and whatnot. And people are telling me to, <laughs> yeah, to leave it. Exactly. Yeah. I'm just trying to get some videos before the fire gets put out so we can actually put something out on social media. And yeah, it was horrendous. It was horrendous. It was horrendous. Then on the way back, obviously, in Barcelona Airport, there's a fault with the system checking in at British Airways. So we spend two hours just standing there and the flight gets delayed on the way back. I'm meant to be going to the NFL at Tottenham Hotspur. I basically show up at half time 
for that one. So, you know, 110 quid ticket, money well spent and a pretty disastrous weekend all in all. At least England won. Happy Monday. Glamour of sports journalism right there. That is absolutely atrocious. Could have got worse. Oh, I forgot to mention as well that I, I left a piece of my equipment in the taxi when the driver kicked me out because he was like, you haven't paid. What's going on? We're in traffic. So he basically, he took my bags out of the, the car and he left a piece of equipment. I even, I didn't realize because I just realized that I left the padlock on my bag. So then I had to wake up first thing on Saturday morning in Andorra, Friday morning in Andorra, go out, spend a hundred quid replacing the equipment that I left in the back of the taxi. Oh, so like geez. I say, pretty dreadful, pretty dreadful weekend. Yeah, it sounds really relaxing. If any listeners out there want to start a crowdfunding page for Hugh's new padlock and uh, several, several multiple keys, uh, then we'll be uh, we'll be very open yeah. to all ideas. Please do get in touch. And also, if any if any listeners out there are, are, are upset by Hugh's story, there is a helpline at the end of the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Not to mention absolutely. the driver, by the way. So I got a car back straight after the Andorra game. <laughs> Honestly, he was falling asleep. As we're going down windy mountain roads, I'm falling oh, no. asleep because it's like one o'clock in the morning. And you know when you know when your head gets banged against the window of the car because the driver's made a really quick adjustment? Like that kept happening. I kept getting thrown oh, around no. the back seat. And I was like, this guy's not okay. And he was like, do you mind if I stop? Which, which then meant, okay, I, I know this guy's very tired here. Um, he had to stop for like 10 minutes, got out, had a cigarette. He was like, I really need to stretch my legs, but I could tell he was tired. And I was like, anything that stops me from dying on a Pyrenees mountainside, yeah, then then that's fine with me. Do I was like, take as much time as you want. You know, I'm not going anywhere. It's two o'clock in the morning. If we get there at 5 a.m., that's fine with me, as long as we get there. So, yeah. It was all worth it though, right, Hugh, to watch Phil Foden and the boys? <laughs> Phil Foden in particular, yeah. Uh, Phil Foden was brilliant. It was weird, wasn't it? It was a 4G pitch that got relayed the morning of the game. Got told off for getting pictures of that as well. Ben Chilwell scored his first goal for England. So did Jack Grealish. Maybe they got the headlines. Tammy Abraham scored as well back in the England fold. But I think Foden, just in that central midfield role, I really felt bad for the Andorra players, most of them part-timers as well. One of the midfielders was, you know, I think he was nigh on 40 years old as well. So it was like, you know, keeping up with Phil Foden, who the only thing that I can say, the biggest positive that I can say about England's performance generally, but in particular Phil Foden, Honestly, every time I see this guy play in the flesh, he plays it like it's a cup final every single match. He didn't, it didn't make any difference that it was Andorra. He approached it in the same way he did the game at, at um, Anfield the weekend before. He was brilliant. So, um, but yeah, England generally very good, as you'd expect. You know, they move on to Hungary Tuesday night and um, a, a chance of qualifying for the World Cup with a couple of games to spare. So we'll see what happens with that. But Foden in particular, I thought, brilliant in a bit of a quarterback role as described by Roy Keane, spraying the ball around. Um, diagonal balls but I think it's just his close control and his movement his way of just gliding past players I felt really bad for the Andorra players at time but, but there, there you go here's what it is a golfing class funnily enough I, I do want to say this it didn't get reported but I thought it was the answer of the weekend the Andorra boss was asked if Andorra should have to go through a pre-qualifier to get to this stage to take on teams like England and he basically said you know, t tomorrow night, the youngsters of Andorra have a chance to dream about being Sterling or Kane or Sancho or Foden or any of these amazing players. They get to see them in the flesh. And if one player is inspired from Andorra to reach that level, 
then then that is what it's all about, giving the children a chance to dream. So, you know, for a week that apparently there was no morality in football, I thought that was a nice answer. But yeah, there was other international football for us to reflect on as well, because it was the Nations League semi-final and final, which is one we didn't really see coming. France win the Nations League and Mbappe's goal won it. We'll come to that in a few moments' time. Before that, on Thursday night, since we last spoke, uh, Spain ended Italy's 37-game unbeaten run. France came past Belgium. Uh, in incredible style from two goals down to reach the final to then beat Spain in that final. But it was another silly VAR decision. Uh, Gregor, as a defender, I'm going to come to you on this one. The balls play through from midfield. I think Garcia, the defender, got a little touch on it. It came through to Mbappe, who was offside. You've got to say when the ball was played, it was clearly being played to him. He then finished it off in very good style, as you'd expect. But should it have been cancelled off? What do you think? Absolutely. It's just, the ludicrous thing about it is how, how is Garcia expected to know that if he leaves it, you know, you can't know in that split second that if you should leave the ball because he's going to be offside. He, he did what any good defender would do. He tried to get something, in, you know, to block the ball going through to Mbappe. And he nearly did, but he didn't quite. And that, that gave, that, that for some reason allowed the goal to stand. I, I know the, I know what the reason is, but it's, it's ludicrous. It's just, there's been a few instances like this where it's kind of somehow you're asking a defender to look two or, two or three steps ahead into the future and knowing what, knowing what their action is going to, it's, you know, is going to cause some different reaction. So absolutely ludicrous decision. Again, I, this, isn't, this isn't really VAR. It's about the interpretation of the rules. I keep saying this. I think, you know, there are human errors with VAR. There are human errors with referees. That's not really going to change. We need to sort out the blooming rules. The rules aren't fit for purpose. I was going to say, I saw a tweet, uh, Alison, I can't remember, I think it was a sports journalist saying, you know, I've watched thousands of games of football and it would be quite nice if after all of those thousands of games, eventually we could be told what offside actually is. Because it's still, you know, it's one of those where, you know, I think there's a common idea of what offside is. That seems to break, shatter that mould, not even break it. And yet it's given as onside. Following Gregor's logic, you could argue that a genius player, I don't know if Mbappe is that or not, but he could also think in this instance, a defender is bound to try and intercept. I will take a gamble that the ball will still reach me and therefore take advantage of the rules as they stand. So why should he, why should the attacker be penalized? Because he's banking on the thought process of his op- opponent. I think that's a stretch, Alison. I see where you're coming from. But I think, um, I think any, any human being be able to process that—that's like artificial intelligence to the future levels of. You could, yeah, of player could just, just stand five yards offside the whole time and get the midfielders to fire it at the defenders, hope it comes off one of their knees, and then just bang it in the back of the net. The thing I, I was hurt back to is the game. I think it was City against Leon in the Champions League when a ball was played through, and I, I can't remember the name of the player, but. He went through his legs. He was standing in an offside position, and that completely changed the thought process. I think of maybe it was John Stones set off. Maybe it was maybe it's automatic. I think it might have been Eric Garcia. Actually, you think? It might have been Garcia. Again. I should have really looked. It was up. a night they played a back three. To be honest, remember it was a night they played yes, a back yes. three. Yeah, but Don't I, start. that was the same. That was the same thing. The ball was fired in. The defender's thinking he's clearly offside. It goes through his legs, and someone else runs onto it. So there's mm. again, there's too many, there's too many moving parts there. You've just got to be offside if you're offside. I still think that about you know you get players interfering with the goalkeeper's line and things like that. Just if you're offside, you're offside. It's got to be simple. 
straightforward. Well, I mean, the, the the player standing in front of a goalkeeper one is becoming an issue already this season, isn't it? Yeah. We've seen it in the Premier League with a couple of couple of decisions. I think Leicester fairly harshly treated, I think, against Brighton, was it? With a couple of headers yeah. from corners and things. So that one's an interesting one. I mean, I was kind of watching it and I thought this is another case of something we've talked about this season with VAR and a desire for officials to be seen to let the game go in a positive way, i.e. a goal is a positive thing. Uh, and therefore side with the more positive outcome. I don't be the person who rules out a goal. Whereas, I, as Gregor says, you just looked at it and were like, that's offside, carry on. It's almost like an over-interpretation of this. There's a touch. Can we give the goal? It feels to me like we, we've had so long of anti-VAR and VAR's ruining the flow of the game, VAR's ruining the entertainment of the game. We're going a little bit far the other way now in a desire to seek joy and entertainment and goals. Yeah, there's a there's this thing, isn't there, in, in football where the goalkeeper is overly protected in terms of physicality in the box. And yet mm. the one time he really needs protection is when he cannot, he's, he's either got to keep an eye on someone who's very close to him, wondering about his position and also where the ball's going to come from. And there's a complete lack of empathy, I think, on how difficult that is to be the goalkeeper in that instance. So you flip from, oh my goodness, there's a bit of a tussle in the air. The the goal, the keep, the free kick's bound to go in favour of the goalkeeper, and it always does. And that I think that's very annoying. But then when it comes to the crucial, was it a goal or wasn't it a goal? The difficulty of what the goalkeeper had to contend with in terms of who was or wasn't offside, is is completely like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. I don't think it is fine. If you think about it, it's really hard as a goalkeeper to do, to have your, your, you know, humans' eyes don't swivel. They have to look at the same thing. So you can't keep an eye on on one attacker and another attacker with the ball at his feet. It's very difficult. I'll come back to it from the defender's point of view as well, is that how I don't know how you're supposed to defend and when there's all these things to consider. You know, if you're trying to hold a line or you're trying to step out to make a player offside, and, you know, it depends whether he's interfering with the goalkeeper or if someone gets a faintest touch and it's a second phase of play and, and the striker who was offside, who you stepped up to play offside, is now onside. Good luck. I always, yeah, I always think it's offside. Look, if, if the defender has, has touched the ball for that second phase to begin, but he's only done it because a player's in an offside position, it's offside. You know, like the Mbappe goal, he's only put his leg out to try and block that pass because he's trying to stop it going to an offside player. So it must be offside, you know, for, for me. But um, but there you go. I'm not a referee. I don't make the rules. And whoever does, once You're again, doesn't seem job. to have got it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> another, another, yeah, another pretty bad job being done. But there you go. Um, listen, I want to talk about what Thibaut Courtois said after the third place game for Belgium uh, in the Nations League. He was talking about too much football, essentially, the former Chelsea goalkeeper, of course, now at Real Madrid. He says they, UEFA, made an extra trophy, referring to the UEFA Conference League. He says it's always the same. They can be angry about other teams wanting a Super League, but they don't care about the players. They just care about their pockets. It's a bad thing that the players aren't spoken about. And now you hear there's going to be a European Championship and a World Cup every year. When will we get a rest? Never. So in the end, top players get injured, injured and injured. It's something that should be much better and more taken care of. We're not robots. It's just more and more games, less rest for us, and nobody seems to care about us. Next year, we have a World Cup in November. We have to play until the latter stages of June once again. 
We all get injured. Nobody seems to care about the players anymore. Three weeks of holiday is just not enough for players to be able to continue for 12 months at the highest level. If we never say anything, then it will always be the same. Uh, so pretty strong comments from Thibaut Courtois. What do you make of them, Tom? I think it's interesting. I was taken slightly off guard because I'd spent a couple of days enjoying the Nations League, particularly those semi-finals, which were great fun and uh, great entertainment. And so it was a little bit of a sobering reminder uh, from Courtois. He's obviously got a very good point. He's being a little bit extreme, isn't he, in the sense of talking about, oh, there's, there's, there's going to be a tournament every year. That's not actually going to happen now. I think the Nations League has actually been a good thing. I think it's been good for... Maybe I'm speaking as a journalist and editor who often gets bored by international breaks and enjoys the excitement of a Nations League competition. But I think it's been a potentially a good thing. I think when England were in it a few years ago and doing quite well and got to got to the latter stages, that was that was good for their development. That was good for Southgate's team, good for some of those younger players to be playing in competitive games either side of World Cups and Euros. Does there need to be a third place playoff in it though? Probably not, but but you can understand why there's a thirst and a desire for that to happen when all the other games have been so exciting. I mean, I'm just trying to I'm I'm trying to play the devil's advocate before the understandable points that are going to come. I feel from Gregor as the ex-pro saying, "What a waste of time! What a load of rubbish!" I can see why when you've got such exciting teams, exciting players that you'd want to capitalise on that. Probably the wrong choice of words given them talking about money, but wanting to wanting to you know really really enhance the competition in its newest form. I think a third and fourth place playoffs a waste of time in any competition. Personally, even in the World Cup, even in the Euros, no one really cares if you come third. Like just do away with that. That's not part of football. You get to get to a final and you win it or you lose it. That's that's it. So I, I, I agree with them in that that respect. And also this is. You know, more of this, please. You need more football. I think if it's if it's going to change, you need more kind of high-profile footballers. This isn't really, even really associate this with Steve Courtois. He seems like a fairly understated reserve character, really, but he's he's gone in with both barrels here, which is great. And I think you'll, we'll need more of that if if footballers are to be kind of heard about this because he's right. Like, and there's it is all about money, and it's you know there's a kind of war build, building and growing between FIFA and UEFA. There's going to be you know they're trying to have a FIFA are trying to have a World Club Cup, you know, as as he as he alluded to about you know whether they want they're trying to get the the World Cup and Euros every two years, it's not likely to happen. But there is a kind of it's all driven by money. It's driven by these two warring factions trying to gain control of the, the fixture list and and money and power. So uh, the footballers are going to be completely overlooked in all of this. And I think you're going to need to hear more from high level of players if this is to be pushed back against. You never ever hear players saying, I just love being with my fellow countrymen, speaking a common <laughs> tongue, oh, well, eating, Scots, eating our favourite food. <laughs> I love I just love it. It's like a holiday in itself. I hardly know I'm playing football at all because I'm representing <laughs> my country and I'm singing my anthem and I'm the happiest I've ever been. And why is that? They don't get paid for international football. Oh, yeah, we, we all, we're all very sniffy about it unless it's actually the moment of the World Cup. We don't care how they get there, really, do we? And we're also we're also not a charity for Andorran children either. There are lots of charities I support. I'm not going to support <laughs> one for the hopes and aspirations of the children of Andorra. <laughs> uh, 
else is that's a new one that <laughs> not all children in andorra well actually maybe they are but um that's not the point okay there's this you know children need to dream doesn't matter how wealthy their parents are okay i'm just can't have those attitudes on the podcast definitely lost the four listeners that we've got in andorra <laughs> criticism of their taxis and now alison saying then whoa, whoa, whoa. those taxis were in barcelona those taxis were oh, in okay barcelona. sorry sorry good well so we've lost barcelona as well now as well. <laughs> <laughs> i want to keep well. andorra have, having been to andorra you never know who might employ you in the future um listen <laughs> there is something that i do want to bring up, up with you which we didn't say before the podcast that we would discuss but I found it very strange. I was in Andorra watching all these people react to the suggestion that there should be 18 teams in the Premier League so negatively as if it would ruin football. I mean, the, the top flight in England used to be bigger. It's already got smaller. What's wrong with having an 18 team top flight? I just don't see why so many people were speaking so negatively about it. There was already, for me, there's already too many games. What's wrong with an 18 team Premier League, Tom? I think it's probably in light of the discussions around Super Leagues and things like that. The idea that you would reduce the number of teams and lose teams like Norwich or others, you're kind of condensing it even further, but down to what they want, which is a, a, a Super League, basically. Super League but then, it, yeah, but it's been interesting. I don't know whether anyone else has watched any of the uh, BBC documentaries about the birth of the Premier League and how that was all framed around calling it a Super League and things like that. So, you know, and as you say, it was a bigger league back then. Then it got changed. I don't know. Maybe they'll have 18 and we'll, we'll, we'll forget about this argument. But I think it's probably in light of those discussions that they'd be reluctant to lose teams like Norwich, make them feel bad. It's just Courtois' comments that made me think, well, you know, we've had this conversation earlier this year about the EFL Cup. Something's got to give eventually. Yeah, but it's not, I mean, that, that's not going to, you know, it's not going to really drastically cut down the number of games that footballers are playing by dropping two teams from the Premier League. I think there's a bigger picture to look at here about the number of competitions. It's not just like how much of this calendar each one takes up. It's just the number of competitions and games that for, for club and country that, that these players, top level players, this is, are expected to play. And it's not really sustainable, even with the size of squads and the, the amount of money that's swollen around. I don't think it's sustainable, really. And also, the championship would just burst, wouldn't it? If you <laughs> if you had another couple of big teams in it. <laughs> We're not suggesting that the championship expands because the Premier League loses two teams. Yeah, that opens up a whole other kettle of fish. There you go. <laughs> if, if it comes at the time that the, the, the EFL reforms itself to five leagues of 20, which is what it seems to want to do, and there's a big reset of the leagues. I, I just don't see a problem with it, to be perfectly honest. And yeah, it might not drastically, you know, reducing the Premier League by four matches maybe doesn't drastically. But for most clubs, that's their entire, you know, FA Cup campaign, you know, if you get to the final. But I mean, most, you know, that it gives space for another competition entirely for most teams in the Premier League. They only play two, three FA Cup games. That's another competition you fit in by losing four Premier League games. I think the thing to like say is that you know, reform is okay. not saying that reform is bad. I think I agree with Tom. I think the Nations League's been a success, broadly speaking. But you know, you you can't just introduce new competitions all the time. And as I say, when there's two warring factions trying to do this, and that is the direction of travel, you know, something's something's going to have to give. The Nations League has been much more exciting than watching England play Moldova or the, you know Scotland play in the Faroe Islands. I hope I'm not speaking too soon. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Yeah. Just quickly, Gregor, as you mentioned, Scotland there, and they had a massive result coming from behind, what, twice, three times possibly, against Israel at the weekend for a 3-2 win. But it means they're very much on course for that playoff spot in their group in terms of World Cup qualification. Big win. Yeah, I mean, as I say, I really hope I've not spoken too soon, but we just need to win against the Faroe Islands and Moldova to guarantee second place, which means we wouldn't need anything from Denmark. So this was an enormous win. And you saw the kind of, the Hamden roar was back. First sellout at Hamden for four years. And actually a friend of mine brought his um, his nephew, his little, his brother's son, to his first ever football game. And what a first football game. You can imagine, oh, that's the kind of thing. There is a bit of a bond being kind of built. You can you can see, I've spoken about this for a little while, but, and obviously, you know, the Euros were pretty disappointing. There's been some, some, uh, some troughs as well at peaks, but there is, there's, you've got a young, young group of players with potential, you know, players with character as well. Like, I've joked about John McGinn and he's kind of, he's all action performances, but he's, you know, he's inspirational. Billy Gilmore coming through, ran the game in the second half. And, you know, as I say, character. That's what they, that's what this team definitely have. And it was a game that had everything, really. You know, as you say, came from behind, missed penalties, VAR drama with Lyndon Dyke's goal. He's kind of quite quite correctly, you know, he got his foot tip well before the the defender was trying to head it away. And I was at risk of being a high high boot, but that that counted. And then Ali McCoy's commentary as well. Everyone just, just <laughs> what, what that is, you know, if you're not, if you weren't lucky enough to have a ticket, you're you're very fortunate to have Ali McCoy's absolute joy at the end just saying oh will you look at this <laughs> <He's> just, <laughs> look at this and then I saw Michael Stewart as well BBC uh, Scotland kind of pundit did a, a little film at the end just as the players were walking off and just looking around and then you know 50,000 people singing yes sir I can boogie it was just bedlam <laughs> and the looks on the players faces as well they were just kind of looking around thinking you could see they were like this is mad yeah. <laughs> but it's good yeah. so you know as I say I really hope we're not speaking too soon because as Michael Grant's written in the, in the Times today, the Faroe Islands is like a place where you say, it's like war vets go, oh, do you remember the Faroe Islands back in, you know, 20 years ago? You weren't, there's a line in his face, he goes, you weren't there, man, you weren't there. <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's like. So I really hope that we can get past that and, uh, and finish the job. Lyndon Dykes won't be taking the penalty, will he, if you get one? No, he likes going down the middle, and I think that was a bit obvious, unfortunately. So he's going to have to change it up. They are building that spirit, though, Scotland, that I think, you know, carries teams to major tournaments. You know, they even the, the game against England at the Euros built a bit of spirit. You know, you've had the yes, sir, I can boogie. You know, some great... It's true, though. You know, they are building something at Scotland that you think the likeable group of players that you mentioned, I think they can carry themselves on that wave of emotion, possibly to a World Cup. wonder if you'll go to that World Cup in Qatar, though. Up next, we're going to be talking about something slightly linked at Newcastle United's new takeover. But remember, if you're enjoying the podcast, make sure you're subscribed, rate us, leave us a review if you like as well. But yeah, up next, Newcastle United. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com.
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Newcastle United are looking at a significant number of changes after their Saudi Arabian state-funded takeover was completed last week. Still stuck in the headlines, but Addison Rudd, um, first time we've been able to really hear from you on Newcastle. And I think as journalists, we at the Times, maybe at other uh, publications as well, are really pondering how best to cover the debate over Newcastle United. What do you think about all of it? Well, first of all, my concern is that a lot a lot of people just haven't really got their heads around what sports washing is because if you if you raise a moral objection to the takeover to um, most newcastle fans they have they have a quick retort which is yeah but the british government deal with with the Saudis. Um, there are plenty of clubs owned by dubious organizations or governments or and have influence. Why pick on us? And I would say, ah, there is something very, very specific going on with Newcastle, which is that the new owners, when you do a Google search for them, they don't want you to see negative stuff. They want you to find positive stuff about joy and making people happy in the Northeast. And as the time moves on, it'll be about um, an exciting, sexy new manager and poaching an amazing player and the leaders in the transfer window and setting the agenda and clips of goals and so on. And that's what sports washing is. It changes the political agenda and buries bad news. So, in that sense, I think I just it just saddens me that people who are very keen for a change uh, don't really want to think that through. But we, I am as guilty as anybody of seeing. Well, it's happened. It looks very unlikely that it's going to be overturned on moral grounds. I'm slightly uh, like astonished how quickly the U-turn came about. But we then will then we will all move on to talk about who the new manager will be, what the philosophy of of what is essentially a rebirth of a club will be, what is the best way to build um, when you've got almost untapped wealth to to work with. You, I mean that could go horribly wrong. Uh, you, you make a few wrong turns, and you'll find that nobody wants to sign for Newcastle. So, and I, you know, I would like to think that the conversation is still maintained about sports washing and whether any manager or player might themselves wonder about whether they want to have that connection with the club. But I think we will inevitably move on to talk about where Newcastle sit in the league and the impact of their wealth will have on other clubs and on the style of football played and what the league table will look like at the end of the season and next season. I was listening to a political radio station where they had a phone in over Newcastle United and the sort of the point was being made and maybe this is the point that I was trying to make the other day around it being a problem for the country 
um, the amount of sort of money laundering that's allowed. Um, this is not anything to do with Newcastle United's new owners, by the way. You know, that it was it was brought up that the property market was infiltrated by foreign wealth, people trying to hide funds from all over the world in our country. And just the ease with which it's it's able to take place had really been the centre of the conversation. And it was brought up that people in sport who were reacting to Newcastle United negatively, you know, were almost hypocrites. You know, why aren't they talking about any of the other political issues when it comes to this kind of project being done by whether it's people in Russia or people in America or people in Africa or China or wherever, you know, using their money and wealth in London, in the United Kingdom as a whole as well. It was one, it was a different way of looking at it, of course, because it wasn't a phone in for people who were massive football fans. Um, just using that vehicle to talk about the topic. Um, so, but as journalists, I think it is one of those things where I reflected on it and said, well, yeah, I'm not mentioning on a daily basis all of these other things to do with money from elsewhere in the world, but I am going strong on Newcastle. Should I? You know, that I, I really had that thought at the weekend because, it, it, you know, the people calling in were, were basically talking about me when they were pointing out hypocrites. I don't know what I should do, Tom. I wish I had an answer for you, Hugh. It's something I've pondered myself. I, I wrote at the Times Football Newsletter about it, hoping, praying that a reader would respond and tell and show me the way, show me the light as to whether Newcastle fans must be appalled whilst also being excited, whether that whether that is possible. I've yet to get an answer. So if you're out there, if you've got an answer, please do let me know. I think one of the things to say is, you know, you, you alluded to it there. There's There are lots of grim things in this world, aren't there? But I think... It's the contrast between something so utterly joyous as football and football in the Northeast. And that is one of the things that we know of Newcastle. If you're a football fan, you've grown up knowing that huge, passionate fan base. That contrasted with Saudi Arabia and everything that comes with that and the connotations there, the, the contrast is so stark that when it comes to the sport washing element, it is so nakedly obvious that I think that's where you can't not find yourself a little bit conflicted. That's the point, isn't it? I'm sure there are lots of things if you look into them and if you research them, you know, we talked about this on Thursday, that kind of, is it willful ignorance? Is it just ignorance? Is it just a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge? If you look into them enough, you can probably find unpleasant things about a lot of football clubs owners and a lot of things in this world where where we buy our clothes from, for example. I think it's how naked and obvious this is that presents the real problem. I genuinely feel sorry for Newcastle fans a little bit because taking the separate point, which is another thing I've heard, Alison said, when you ask a lot of Newcastle fans, what's the what's the immediate response? They respond that it's as much about Ashley being gone, about Mike Ashley's era at the club being over. That's where the joy is coming from. And that's understandable as well, because that's been an incredibly difficult time to be a Newcastle fan. So to then have it thrown back in your face about moral arguments and being told that you should be a better person, almost, I actually, I find myself feeling really sorry for Newcastle fans in that respect. I don't know. We have to, we we obviously have to talk talk about and analyse their decisions and the way that they they now go on to change the face of the football club and you know the football. We have to do all that, but I just thought we can never lose sight of why they're doing it. That has to be that has to be there in the background all the time um, because it's the whole every type, every kind of astute appointment or signing uh, or display of like competency like the the fact that they you know they'll build the club slowly and you know show that they're 
you know they're doing this properly, like like Manchester City did. That that's that's the likelihood. You know they'll try and spread out into the community and you know develop parts of around the club and uh, around Newcastle and build an academy, build infrastructure, all these things. Get it's, a women's team, which is a very interesting decision yeah, as well. Yeah, but every single kind of step is is a kind of a way of trying to shine a, a try to shift perceptions, just to shine the light slightly more flatteringly on the owners and this and Saudi Arabia. <laughs> That's the point. So I don't think we can ever lose sight of that. Uh, no matter how much you know, you inev- inevitably get sucked into, oh my, you know, they're going to appoint so-and-so as manager. And then in January, who are they going to try and sign? And you know, this is going to be a, a quite a fast-paced development, you would imagine. So it's, it's inevitable. But there's also... I don't. Know, I just think we can't lose track of of why of why they're here and why they're doing this. But then, how are we going to deal with it? In as Alison said, in two three years' time, when Newcastle win a trophy and we're all on this podcast, well, I won't be. I've probably been sacked by then. But you know, <laughs> same here. <laughs> uh, how are you guys going to talk about it on the podcast when Newcastle have won a trophy? Are you going to say, "Oh, it was brilliant"? Yeah, and the way Rian Brewster, you know, after he's become a top top player and he's been signed <laughs> for fifty million and scored a hat trick, that was fantastic. Shame about the Saudis, though. But yeah, what a goal. What a goal. Wasn't it absolutely brilliant? The owners are horrible. Are we going to do this forever? But it is difficult, isn't it? Because the other point is that, and this is the point, and I know people will say, well, yes, that's sport washing, Tom. You've fallen for it. Well done. But sport is joy and escapism, isn't it? And that's what it is for so many Newcastle fans who work and pay for a season ticket. The other thing I've reflected on the last couple of days is without the killing of Khashoggi, the journalist, and those shocking images, and you're seeing and being wheeled out, and like on the CCTV images outside the, the Turkish embassy, you know it was so brutal. And the fact that it's been American intelligence have, have laid the blame clearly at someone's door. Without that incident, this would be no different to what's happened with, with happened with Manchester City or PSG or anything. You know that's what has made that's what's brought this home so vividly and clearly. Before then, everyone was trying to court MBS because he was supposed to be this kind of modernising face of Saudi, and we were willing to overlook a war in Yemen and the hang- hangings and the kidnappings and all of that. You know that was pretty much being overlooked. Everyone was trying to was trying to court him and probably there would be much there would be far less of this everyone would be saying yeah and you come that one incident is just like has brought it home of what of, of, what, of who these people are I don't know I think that that's that's what's made this so unpalatable I think for for so many people there's not a great deal of difference between some of these Middle East, Middle Eastern states in terms of their attitudes to democracy and to women and to homosexuality and to so many things that we find that are kind of the norm in, in, in the West. So I, I just, that's one thing I reflected on. I think that, that one, that one incident has just kind of brought it home. This is who, this is who Newcastle United have as the owners of their football club now. So after all of that, I don't think we've got an answer as to how we cover it, to be perfectly honest. Should we talk, should we talk about the, the things that are going to happen at Newcastle United next? Just, you know, we've done both sides. No we one can to. complain. But we've got to, but that's, but that is, that is, our job, isn't it? That that's part of what we're doing. There's also another part of this conversation where people fetishize the fact that they are the the richest club in the world now, and you know people go, "Who are we? You know, who can they possibly? Who, they, who can they sign?" That's all. An article, a clickbait article, and from some publication saying, I think it was like the four play, four Manchester United players in Newcastle are uh, having their sights now. You know, enough of that. We don't need that. <laughs> we don't need to to think. You know, what's the dream team? What's the Newcastle dream team now that they've got an open checkbook? We don't need to do that. That's it's, it's in the here and now. Steve Bruce is going to go, 
So we need to look and we need to analyse, think, who would be a good appointment for Newcastle. But in these early stages, um, we're not yet three years down the line when Newcastle are in the Champions League final. They're still, it's still nascent. Wouldn't it be... Well, even if a prospective manager doesn't actually say, someone famous say, no, I don't want to be associated with that regime. I don't approve of the takeover, which would be amazing anti-sports washing stance. Even if someone doesn't say that, the media can say it. The media can say, I wonder if these three leading candidates are worried about being associated with the Saudi regime. So you can keep it going. You can keep the moral issues going. And then you can keep them going when they start signing players as well. There are a lot of journalists who have kept this going with, with Manchester City. Pep Guardiola is just you know, basking in the afterglow of lifting the FA Cup or whatever it is. And he's been asked some pretty awkward questions in the press conference at Wembley. So there are journalists who, who have done this and fair play to them. I think everyone needs to continue doing it. Alison's right. If whoever the next manager is needs to be asked the question, did you have any, did you have doubts here? And if not, why? Uh, well, let's move on. We've only got a few minutes left to talk about some of those issues that, Gregor, you mentioned a second ago. We've got to cover it. A few reports on Newcastle this week. Firstly, the one about all the other teams in the Premier League, 19 clubs asking the Premier League for an emergency meeting. They want to know exactly what has changed so that this takeover was allowed. It's also said that other clubs were given no warning that the takeover was about to be approved by the Premier League's chief executive, Richard Masters, and the chairman, Gary Hoffman, as well. Does that surprise any of you? Do you think that it's right that the other Premier League clubs should have a say or be informed if another club's being taken over? I think this is, well, to be honest, I don't want to sound too cynical, but I think this is an easy, easy way to win back some of the trust lost between the big clubs and their fan base because of the whole Super League debacle and furloughing as well. There is a disconnect there and they they need it to exist. So it's a quite easy thing to say, oh, we're very cross this happened without us knowing because it, they, they, they don't lose anything by making that um, uh, a public annoyance of theirs and it makes them feel like they're connected to the fans you know they want the people on side so I mean yeah I, I do sound quite cynical don't I but I think I think this is an easy way of of bridging that gap that was lost with the Super League proposals I just think the Premier League silence has been pretty extraordinary really there's not been any talk from anyone about about the process and as Alison said the speed with which this suddenly changed this fall that just follows that I think probably the clubs were Surprised by it, surprised by it as as many people, many supporters and whatnot. So a bit more of an explanation of legally binding, you know, assurances that the Saudi state are not going to be, become involved in day-to-day running. Although, what does that even mean? As if the Saudi state are going to be involved in the day-to-day running. They already have direct connections with the PIF. That was enough. So let's hear the explanation as to why they think it was okay. But I actually asked Gareth Southgate, the England manager, if he thought these were the right people to be involved in English football. He said... It's a very pertinent question that needs to be answered by the Premier League. Um, he said he didn't think his role as England manager should be getting involved in it. But I did think that was interesting that he basically suggested to me that there, there does need to be some clarification over it publicly from the Premier League. The world's complicated. I mean, you wouldn't, wouldn't put it past the government to be putting pressure on the Premier League to say, we deal, we trade with Saudis. It doesn't make sense for us to trade and you to ban, ban a, a country we trade with from buying a football club or indirectly buying a football club. So who knows what's been going on in the background here? 
Yeah, look, we we know conversations in the world happen in the shadowy corners of dark rooms, but I think football is a community thing and there needs to be transparency. Even if they put a, a statement out that we all think is utter tosh, we need to see it. You know, it's just one of those things. Anyway, look, I'm sure we'll come back to this in the future podcasts. Let's talk about Steve Bruce, though, next. You're right, on the brink reportedly of getting sacked with Locomotive Moscow's head of sports and development, Ralph Ranić, the former Schalke and Leipzig boss, strongly linked with becoming sporting director at St. James's Park. I mean, generally speaking, what should happen next with Newcastle, now that we're, we've got past the sports washing, uh, what should happen with Newcastle next, Tom? Once you park the sport washing, I think what should happen is that actually I don't really understand the logic in sacking Steve Bruce straight away. There's a lot to be done at that club. Just bear with me, Gregor. Gregor's nearly fallen (laughs) off his chair. I don't understand the logic from the point of view that as a PR exercise, which is we're saying what this is, they've already garnered loads of support and enthusiasm. They could then look into when are we going to get those horrible sports direct signs down? How long is that going to take? and just give Bruce a few weeks. And then if they lose a few more games, then they can sack him, but actually get your house in order and work out what your plan is because they can't bring in some manager. They're still going to have the same players for a couple of months till January. It's still the same very limited squad. And I don't really know what this rush to appoint a new manager. I mean, Ralph Rannick, I mean, I don't, I don't, just don't see it. Ralph Rannick coaching Jeff Hendrick and the boys, like how to, how to play between now and... No, he would be upstairs, wouldn't he? Well, yeah, but... I don't see. I don't see what you get. And I mean, it's interesting that so Alison wrote a very good piece talking about new owners and new managers last week in light of this uh, this news. And we put a reader poll with it for Times readers, and five thousand people responded, and forty percent said that Bruce deserves a chance under the new ownership, which I was I was shocked by. Maybe it was a lot of Sunderland and Middlesbrough fans wanting to have a exactly. laugh. Who knows? <laughs> but, uh, but who knows? But. I, I just don't. I just don't really understand the logic. But I, but but Greg is about to tell me why I'm wrong. I think the optics would be would be the one place to start. Which you know, if they if they lose heavily to Tottenham, and your own fans, a sellout crowd. Let's not forget singing you're getting sacked in the morning or whatever. Which they probably would. You know, the boos have been ringing out loud and clear after most games so far. At, St James's Park. That's not a good start. You want this. You want. You want to be a clean slate, a new beginning. I think it's fairer on Steve Bruce as well. I think you'll be gone sooner rather than later, anyway. So I think it's time to to move on for everyone. Also, as I as I wrote in that piece, Tom, it this is a slightly different takeover in that when you analyse other Premier League teams um, and other clubs that have been taken over, this is more wrapped up in in. Uh, disquiet about Steve Bruce. Often the, who the manager is when there's a takeover isn't isn't really a key thing. You you kind of know they'll get between three months and nine months. And that seems to be the average, really. But in this instance, part of the welcoming of, of a new owner is that it's, it seems to be implied that they will cut, cut with Steve Bruce as well as with Mike Ashley. They're intertwined. It's like, I don't know, it's like getting married and inviting your ex-husband there. You, you, mostly, most of the time you don't do that. You know, you, you make a clean break. It's a fresh start. It's, it, was that it awkward feel, for you? It would feel wrong in this instance. <laughs> was, that, was that an awkward one? <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I mean, there's, there's another point as well in Martin's piece today, news piece talking about it, how it'll cost... Seven million to pay off Bruce and his staff. Obviously, absolute peanuts to the new owners. 
But I mean, if Bruce was willing to forego that, we were talking about before about someone making a stand, maybe he could quit, make a stand, say, I can't do it. I can't work with these guys. You'd be like, well, you weren't going to anyway, Steve. But I mean, he'd be a legend forever, wouldn't he? He'd be a legend in Hugh's eyes, certainly. A few million later. Yeah, exactly. Take the money, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. <laughs> um, look, very, very quickly on the money. Um, Martin Ziegler reporting Newcastle can spend hundreds of millions of pounds immediately and still fall within financial fair play rules. Uh, they're allowed already to make a £105 million loss over a three-year period from the Premier League. They've got all of that in the bank, thanks to the, let's call it, prudent approach from Mike Ashley. Um, they've also got a, an FFP credit from UEFA of £100 million. That's built up over the past three years. So thank you, Mike Ashley, as well. And of course, thanks to a player amortisation, if I've said that correctly, um, for example, spending £100 million on a player, but giving them a five-year deal means that only takes £20 million a year off the books. Thanks, by the way, to the price of football's Kieran Maguire for all of those details. Um, but it means that Newcastle can spend big in the short term. So do we think in January, uh, the stories around players coming to Newcastle will be, will be massive? I mean, this is going to be like with the manager. I was thinking about Manchester City. And when you think back to that, obviously there was the Rubinho, but you know they had Mark Hughes as manager which was seen as a step up. You know, he was a hotly tipped young manager at the time. But, you know, the squad was the guy, the Brazilian striker, Joe. I think they paid 20 million for him from a club in Russia. Roque Santa Cruz. You know, they, they were good, seen as good players and an improvement on what they had. But when you reflect on it, it was a layering system of improvement in the manager, improvement in the squad. You know, this I, it's delusional, isn't it, to think they're going to go out and spend hundreds of millions on players at the very top. They've got to bridge that gap first. They've got to get up to mid-table. They've got to get up to Wolves. I don't think so. No, you can't. You've got to do it in stages. What I'm saying is, looking at the Premier League, they can, within the next, I think, two transfer windows, i.e. I, going into next season, have a team that's aiming for top six. No, yeah, I don't think... That, I, I, why not? Uh, let nah. me explain it. There are enough good players available... There are enough good players available either coming to the end of their contracts or unwanted at their clubs due to the pandemic who would move to Newcastle, sign good deals and have a very strong team. I mean, we spoke at the start of the year about the players who weren't even going to be kicking a ball at their clubs. I mean, all of those players are available in the short term to Newcastle. Loads playing coming to the end of their deals at the end of this season as well, who they could sign on free transfers. I'm not saying that they should go in, go and get a huge name in football. But what I'm saying is they could have a top six team next season I think they could if they get the right manager and they get smart and they get and they're smart with their with their transfers but getting the right manager and being smart is something we've talked about at length on this podcast before and that comes back to having an overall ethos with your squad and with your playing system you know it's taken West Ham years to get it right and they finally got David Moyes who as we've said buys David Moyes type players and has a team packed with Syed Benrahma's Jared Bowen's players that are going to work hard, be really talented and really fit a David Moyes team. That has taken many iterations of West Ham over the years, the Pellegrini years with the Felipe Andersons. It's a trial and error thing and I, I just can't see them getting that right. They'll, they will sign some talented players and move up the league, but they but top six is going to be a good, good few transfer windows off, I think. Yeah, this season's about surviving still. Like in the Premier League, they have to stay up um, because imagine they didn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's about, you know, if you're talking about someone like Ralph Ranić, he's like, 
you know, he's got a huge reputation in the game, bit of a visionary. So whoever, if he comes in, he's got to be given time and resources and which he will get. Employ a manager who with whom there's synergy and you kind of, you know, you see the game in the same way. You know, a new recruitment structure, lots of money into infrastructure. That's where they can get the big wins as well. You know, the tired, it's been written about so much how tired the training ground is, how tired St. James Park is. So it should be in stages like that. Absolutely. I don't, I don't agree to uh, you at all. Like there are players out there, yes, you could who are available. They always will be. Um, they also need to, you know, the, the the remarkable thing about Manchester City's growth has been the increase in their turnover and the revenue from commercial deals and stuff like that. All of that has to happen because that allows you to spend more. So these things take time. Man City's takeover was in two thousand and eight. They finished tenth. The next year they were fifth. The next year they were third. The next year they won the league. But I think it's way more competitive now. Leicester, West Ham. Absolutely. They're starting from a lower base. Manchester City were owned before that by someone else who ploughed in a lot of money. So yeah, they're starting from a lower base as well. As I said, there's probably you could probably pick four players in Newcastle's squad who you could see staying there beyond like the next two years. They're really, really average. So right now, it's about getting someone who can get, get the best from them and can ensure that they survive. And yes, they'll add, they'll add to the squad in January, but it's, it's about implementing the right structure. That's the most important thing. Yeah, once, once they've got the shiny new training ground and so on, they'll be able to slowly attract it. I think it has to be a slow build. I don't think really big name players want to be you know, seen as experimental. That ends our conversation on Newcastle United, which I'm sure we will return to. Apologies if it leaves a bad taste in the mouth. Um, but I think, again, as Alison says, over the next few years, things will change like they have at other clubs in the Premier League. There will be more on that, I'm sure, in the days to come. We'll be talking England on Thursday as well. But Gregor Robertson, Alison Rudd, Tom Clark, thank you for being with me. Thank you all for listening as well. Remember, make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times. If you do it today, you'll get yourself one month free. Just go online, search the the times.co.uk forward slash the game to get yourself started. We'll see you soon.